0: God can do anything he wants. And I think, I've said this before over the course of the last couple of weeks, I I think we have a tendency, when we look at and see the heroes of Scripture, to romanticize that a little bit. And I think we want to sit and say, wow, look at that thing, I wish God would use me like that, I wish God could do something like that with me, I wish God would, I wish God would, And then, because wow, look at this amazing story, And I think we forget that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to this process, and that sometimes it's not as neat as we would like it to be. I think it's one thing, too, when we kind of know the end of the story, and we can look back and say, yeah, this was a a neat thing that God did here, and yet sometimes in the middle, not, not quite what we had hoped. The verse this morning that I've been we've, been, we've been kind of walking through Hebrews 11 and using it as an outline kind of to tell some of the stories of the Old Testament, and I think what's happened kind of inadvertently is we've ended up walking through the book of Genesis uh, so far. We'll be hitting Exodus starting next week and for, in weeks following, I believe, um, but my, my verse this week out of Hebrews 11 that we're at is Hebrews 11:21, 21, and it says, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, this takes place in Egypt. The beginning of the story where we left last week, he's in Canaan. So how did that happen is kind of the journey that we're on. The difficulty is, as I said, this takes place over 20-some chapters. I don't typically like telling stories. Um, I would prefer to simply just read you the account, but I think in this instance how'd you get from here to there is an important part, and so we're gonna try to work quickly through these 20-some chapters, and we'll do it more in a story form than in simply reading it, so bear with me. So we see at the end of chapter 28, uh, Jacob has, or Isaac has blessed Jacob instead of Esau, and a little bit cheated, and Esau's pretty upset and is threatening to kill Jacob, and so Jacob flees. And yet we see, almost immediately, in chapter 28, God revisits his covenant promise to Abraham and confirms it through Jacob. Although there is one minor change to it, and it's a bit of an addition. But uh, Genesis 28, starting in verse 13 and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's pretty, it's pretty standard so far that we've seen consistently throughout the promise. This part's a little new. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And so in there, there's this different piece that says, okay, you're probably not gonna be here the whole time, you're probably going away but don't worry, you'll come back. This is still the land that I'm promising you. And yet we see him uh, dying in Egypt at the very end of the story all the way in Genesis 50. So what happens between this and that, and so now's where you need to bear with me and I will do my best to accurately portray this, but so here we go. Lord, make this about what your story is and not (laughs) anything that's messed up, send it someplace else. But anyway, let's, uh, let's walk through this. Jacob at this time is fleeing from his brother and his mother has sent him to his family to find a wife. He goes and shows up and he makes an agreement with Laban, who I believe is his uncle, and says, you can marry my daughter, Rachel, your beloved, after seven years of working for me. Everybody committed to that? I I plan on having that same exact plan with my daughter. (laughs) After seven years of working with her betrothed, then he can marry her. That'll be fine with me. And that should start dating probably sometime around 30, right, is that accurate? Anyway, sorry, I have a 14-year-old daughter and she's good at it sometimes. But um, that's unrelated. She's not even here to defend herself today. But uh, seven years happens, and Laban kind of pulls a fast one, and he ends up marrying the wrong daughter because he needed to marry off the older daughter before the younger daughter. Clearly, the traditions are a little bit different because nowadays you can see who you're marrying, correct? Back then, and this is the way that Scripture put it, he says, he woke up, and behold, there was Leah. Leah not Rachel. He didn't know until morning that he had married the wrong person. Kind of too late at that point. You ever ever felt that way, by the way? And you wake up and behold, there's Leah. (laughs) Boy, that happens in my life. I know it's not a statement about my wife, not at all. That's a statement about my life. Wow. (sighs) I'm in so much trouble. I haven't even started yet. (laughs) No, that's a statement about my life. I feel like something happens in my life and I roll and behold, there's Leah. That's not what I anticipated at all. I'm very content with my wife. Let me say that publicly. I'm very happy. It's too late though, isn't it? It's too late. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wow. We digress. I apologize. (laughs) Those are those things I was praying about a moment ago. They just need to go away. Um, Anyway. So he makes a second agreement. He'll work another seven years, take the betrothal time that is that one week period, and the following week he can marry his beloved. So he does that, he marries, ends up spending a total of 20 years with Laban. During that time, he becomes very wealthy uh, in property and in uh, livestock and things, and then at at this point he gets ready to go back to Israel where he's going to reconnect with his brother. And so he begins this journey back. He actually sneaks away, so he doesn't, so that's a whole thing. And you see that all the way through. And then there's this pause uh, as he meets Esau, they, re, they embrace and they, they do the thing and eventually they have to separate uh, because they both become too big to inhabit that part of the land. And so Esau moves down and settles in what is present day Jordan, uh, the nation of Edom, and then uh, Jacob inhabits um, Canaan. Then there's this weird pause in the story and from it's, uh, chapters 34 through 36 and then again in chapter 38, what, what, you, what you have here is the story of a family that is being portrayed throughout the Old Testament and it is chasing this one line, this lineage that is being created in that line, all nations of the world will be blessed. It's that piece that's following. And so Jacob is renamed Israel and all of a sudden we have now the nation of Israel that is followed throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But what happens here in these three chapters, 34, 35, 36, and then again in 38, so I guess four chapters, we see how messy family is. There's all kinds of weird stuff that goes on, I'm not gonna get into that today, but you see that family's a mess. This is not a perfect people, any more than we're a perfect people today. And yet what you see even in chapter 38, which is the, uh, p- where it tells specifically about the line and how Judah and Tamar end up together and their son Perez is actually the line that follows through to, to Messiah. There's this mess that allows that to even happen. I'm glad the church is different today and we don't have to deal with messy people. We're all perfect all the time, are we not? It's actually funny. I, I was such a disaster yesterday. My daughter and I were laughing this morning she says, hey, it's kind of funny that you're preaching this morning after the way you acted yesterday. <laughs> it's probably true. <laughs> she sees the hypocrisy. And the reality is there's no perfect people either standing here or sitting there. And we're all kind of this work in progress. And that, the family in the Old Testament is no different. And yet here wedged in between is the beginning of the story of Joseph. As Jacob began to have sons, Leo was having children all over the place. And his beloved Rachel was not. And yet you see again a barren situation where there's no children coming into this situation. And again they pray and the two children come. However, Jacob loses his beloved Rachel in the delivery of the second child, Benjamin. And so the story that begins is a story of his eldest son, Joseph, who he loved more than all the others. In fact, this has been portrayed on Broadway. It's been portrayed in movies. So you may be familiar with the story. Creates this great big coat of many colors that sets him apart and honors him differently. Some people would even say that it was a technicolor coat. I would not say that, but some people would say that. But there's this place of he's set apart, he's different, and his brothers hate him for it. He's also started having dreams. Now Joseph is 17 years old, and he's having these dreams. And like most 17 year olds, no offense, I had a dream. Let me tell you all about it, where all of your stuff comes and bows down to all of my stuff and worships. Hmm. Yeah, that's probably not happening, sir. Thanks very much for playing, but we're not gonna do that. And so you have this beginning of this seed of pretty extreme hatred. So being shepherds, they're out away taking care of flocks and Jacob sends Joseph out to be with them. They see him coming because he's got this crazy coat from a long way off and they look at each other and said, here comes that dreamer. Let's get rid of him. In fact, initially they said, let's kill him. But one cooler head prevailed and said, let's just throw him in this pit over here and see what happens. And then eventually, oddly, we talked about this a little last week, a group of Ishmaelites come by and purchase Joseph. And so his brothers sell him into slavery. And they proceed to take him down to Egypt. Once in Egypt, he's sold again and begins working for someone in the king's household named Potiphar. Um, And he is eventually put in charge of all of Potiphar's house, but he's still a slave and then is accused by Potiphar's wife of trying to rape her. Naturally, Potiphar's not pleased, and he's thrown into prison, uh, falsely accused. At this point in the story, for those of you that know the end, press pause for a second. This is where I start to get a little uncomfortable with this story where God can do whatever he wants. Because if you know the end of the story, you see this great place of celebration that says in chapter 50, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. I'm in prison, folks. This is God's plan. This does not sound like the promises that I'm used to hearing from the Bible. Roses, sunshine, rainbows, unicorns, all those fun things that we're supposed to, now that we're believers, now that we're Christians, hooray, we got all this great stuff. That's not true of me. I don't know that it's true of you. You've just heard a ministry that's not finding it true where they're going. I think we need to come to terms with the fact that we're messy. And that sometimes God allows the mess. I would even say that sometimes God ordains the mess to accomplish his purpose. And so here you have Joseph in prison for something that he didn't do, having been sold into slavery by his family. You want to talk about emotional issues? or possibly physical issues. The prisons are not quite the same as they are today. Mental? We haven't gotten to spiritual issues yet. I'm trying to imagine my prayer life in that moment, sitting in prison. Although most people who have been in similar situations say they pray like they've never prayed before. I believe that's probably true in this instance. But I've got to believe that the prayer that would be on my mind is like, Ah! or something like that, something equally eloquent. And yet we see at the end of the story that God is in this all the way through. A short time after these two men who are in Pharaoh's court get put into prison and they each have dreams and they share their dreams with Joseph and Joseph is able to interpret their dreams. Three days later, they're brought back and one of them is put reinstated, the other is executed, just as Joseph predicted through the dreams. And then Joseph says, please remember me when you go back, because I'm here and I shouldn't be. And so, true to his word, the cupbearer goes back and it takes him two years to remember. Two weeks is too long in that scenario for me. I'm in prison. Why are you taking two years to do this? And then would renew my prayer from a few moments ago. And yet eventually Pharaoh has a dream that he can't explain. And this person goes, oh, you know what? I know who can help with that. And then all of a sudden Joseph is brought out, interprets the dreams, prepares for what the, the, the dreams are actually about a famine that was coming, following a time of plenty. Let, let Pharaoh put wise people in charge. And Pharaoh goes, how about you? You can rule over all of Egypt. I'll be the only one in Egypt greater than you. And so you see this slave put in charge of most of the nation of, of Egypt. And so the famine comes, as the dream predicted. They've, been, uh, they've done a good job in the first system that I can find of taxation anywhere, where 20% of your crop is going to come to the government. We're going to hang on to it and make sure that there's food available for those who need it. But the famine spreads throughout the Middle East, and eventually Joseph's family is in need and hungry. And so Jacob says, go to Egypt, they're selling food there. And 10 of the brothers walk into this room, I'm guessing it was a room, I don't know. I'm making the rest of this up, I guess. But all of a sudden they walk into this place and they're standing face to face with their brother, only they don't know who it is. They just see this Egyptian official who has the power to basically do whatever he wants. And these ten people come in and stand before him and he recognizes them. And he does exactly what I would do and he messes with them <laughs> all over the place. So we're gonna put the money. Put the money back in their bags and send them, that'll be great. Watch this. You know, that, that's how I envision this anyway. And then but I think part of him too is sitting there going, are they the same? Are they trustworthy? Are they different? Are they? And eventually, asks them to bring Benjamin, and then he lets them know who he really is. In a very sweet scene where they all weep together, and so they go tell their father. And again, in a really one of the sweetest things I found as I went through these these chapters is this section where it talks about. Jacob finding out that his son, who he loved and who he lost, is actually alive. And he's not sure that he's fit enough physically to travel. And God comes to him and says this, you'll go to Egypt and you'll die there, but the hand of Joseph will close your eyes. You will be with your beloved. That's pretty cool. Anyhow. So that kind of brings us to Joseph. There's a time coming here shortly where we'll deal with the the Hebrews passage again, but there's three things I want to talk about specifically, lessons that I kind of learned as I read through this from, from Joseph. First of them is this phrase, God meant it for evil, you intended it for good that shows up in in Genesis 50. And as I mentioned, I kind of struggled through that. 13 years of Joseph's life, from the time he was 17 until the time he was 30, were sacrificed in order to put him in a place where he could help. And yet I think we look around At the things that need to be done, at the things that maybe we're being called into, at the things that we're and and I think we use modern jargon to say I don't wanna. Um, So some some hard truths that I things that I found and things that I didn't find I guess probably more that I didn't find. God never apologizes for this. Do you notice that? God never apologizes and says, hey, Joseph, by the way, I'm really sorry that I put you through that 13-year period. He also doesn't ask permission to do it. He's God. He can do what he wants. You don't see Joseph going to God and saying, hey, God, I'm not sure I'm being the best version of myself right now. This is just not a life-giving thing for me. And therefore, I think I'll say no. Not that he really had any choice as a slave, but you get the idea. Isn't this the way that we function? As though there's no sacrifice required. What do you suppose, God took 13 years of Joseph's life in order to fulfill this peace where eventually Joseph, being in a position of authority, is able to save his family from starvation, really. And you see this beautiful picture all put together at the end. I'm wondering what God means for you right now. I'm wondering what God means for me (laughs) right now. I'm wondering what his will is. You ever wonder that? This stinks today. What's God's will for me? Well, I think we're we're fortunate that this is just not the only thing we have to deal with here. There's there's other places. And so I'd like to take a look at Romans 12 for just a minute. Romans 12, 1 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living... Best version of yourself. No. But God's not using my gifts. Sorry. That sounds harsh, but don't worry. We'll redeem it. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Forgive me, but I'm not sure that we understand worship in the church today. Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we renew our mind? Well, we need to put things into it that are not... Do I dare say Netflix? It's here. I believe that the renewal of our mind comes through seeing, reading, and spending time in the very words of God himself. And that's what I believe this is. I believe the Bible are the very words of God himself. Designed specifically to guide, to aid, to show us, and yes, even to comfort, but to point us towards what his will is. And that we're required to sacrifice in order to sometimes understand that. That's not fun. You encouraged yet this morning? That's one Two, I believe that the story of Joseph foreshadows Jesus. If you've spent any time listening to me, if you've spent any time with me just in a one-on-one thing, if we're talking about going through and understanding Scripture, you need to be true to the immediate text that is right there and in the context that it's given, but you also need to recognize that there is a broader context of all of Scripture and that you nor I am the main character. Christ is the main character of all of scripture, start to finish. He's the linchpin, the cornerstone. This book begins with separation from God and ends with the renewal of Eden. God with us, us with God again. The connecting point to the whole thing is Christ. But here's why I like this story in particular, because I think that God intentionally foreshadows Christ throughout the stories of the Old Testament. A son, beloved of the Father, who leaves the comfort of his home becomes a servant, the least of these, is falsely accused and punished and then raised to the right hand of the king, where he's able to save those that he loves. Which story am I telling you? Am I telling you the story of Joseph, or am I telling you the story of Jesus? Yes. God can do whatever he wants. The story of Jesus was not an afterthought. The story of Jesus was the plan, from the beginning, to redeem the people of God. Thirdly, I believe that Joseph's brothers foreshadow me and you. I can't imagine what it would have been like the day that Joseph told them who he really was. Had to be a really unique thing to stand in front of somebody who had all the power and where you knew fully that you were in the wrong. Standing before this judge who knows fully and you're completely exposed, probably the darkest time of their lives is now wide open in front of somebody who can really do something about it. And they stand before their brother, in a lot of ways afraid and waiting for judgment. One day that will be true of me, where I will stand before a throne, before my king who knows me completely, knows the bad things that I've done, knows about my day yesterday with my family, knows the motives behind the good things that I do that are bad. sometimes knows the place that I am, that hypocrite that everybody worries about in the church growing up just like you. One day I'll stand before somebody who fully exposed that way, who knows me completely and who has the authority, the power, and the ability to judge me wholly while I receive wrath I receive mercy? You see, there are a lot of people in this world that are a whole lot more moral than I am. There are a lot of people who are a lot more just than I am. There are a lot of people who are better husbands and better fathers than I am. And yet none of those things are what will be judged that day in that moment. What would be put into question in that moment is what do you believe? I believe that Jesus is the savior of someone like me who cannot save themselves. And it's what makes Christianity different than every other religion in the world. And you know what's amazing? I am welcomed in that moment as a brother, a co-heir with the savior of the world. And I imagine there'll be tears. I look forward to that. (laughs) I know me just like Joseph's brothers knew him, and he knew them. God can do whatever He wants, and what He chose to do was to sacrifice. What he chose to do is to give himself for me and for you. He didn't simply put something on Joseph and say, sorry for your suffering. I'll be over here doing my thing. But he gave himself fully as a sacrifice for me and for you. And he did it out of love. for me and for you. So what about Jacob in this blessing? <laughs> That's where this all started. There's nothing in this passage that I can find, as there are in other places. We talked last week about the prediction that the older would serve the, the younger, the older would serve the younger, and we saw those types of things And so you have this blessing that happens. Joseph comes in with his son and he puts the oldest under Jacob's right hand and the youngest under his left hand. And that's the way that was intended to be because this was a different blessing than this. And Jacob, in blessing his grandsons, does this. And Joseph goes, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Hang on, that's not okay. He's like, no, I got it the way I want it but I don't see anything that predicts it, I don't see anything that calls to it, I don't see anything there, and I I honestly think that part of it, imagine what Jacob had been through in the last number of years. Wait, he's alive? Wait, I get to see him? He's gonna be with me when I die? There's part of me that thinks that he just did, let's do this. God can do whatever he wants. I have no scriptural evidence for that. But I see throughout the line of Christ these crazy places where you see in chapter 38 the story of Tamar. That's a weird story. And yet it's through Tamar and Perez that the line of Christ comes. Shortly after a prostitute from Jericho marries a man named Salmon they was a son named Boaz, this Jericho woman and this woman from Midian end up in the line of Christ, the Savior, as though this promise was intended for all the peoples of the world. And yet he includes so many that don't belong in the line, all the way down to me, who's now adopted into this line. So here's my question for you. Do you believe that today? Or is this a different God that we serve? Do you believe that God is able to do whatever he wants today? So I'm asking you, sons and daughters of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, co-heirs with Christ. See, I believe that if God wanted to He could start a revival right here in this place, in these four walls. I believe that fully. I believe that it could spread to Portland like wildfire and then across our nation. I believe that each and every one of us in this room could have a role in witnessing and seeing in our lifetime the next great awakening in our nation. If we would take the time to love and care and sacrifice the way that we're asked to. I also believe that God could do it easily. And that he wants to do it. But he's left it on us, hasn't he? To share this story of redemption, of forgiveness, with those that we love here in this room, in our workplaces at our golf clubs, in our neighborhoods, and in our city. I really believe he could do it easily. Would you join me in going to him to ask? Would you pray with me? Father God, I can't imagine anything more amazing than watching you use normal people to share the greatest story ever told. Can't imagine what it would look like to see disciples of yours next to everywhere here in this city, here in New England, here in this country Lord, would you help us to pursue the lost? Would you help us to pursue holiness? And being set apart. And Lord, would you help us to find those places that you would have a sacrifice even now? In Jesus' name, amen.